Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Liz Lenevy, and today I am joined by Mary Simon, Elizabeth McNulty, and Megan Crow. And we just came back from an event sponsored by the Federal Bar Association for the Southern District of Illinois, and it is the Women in the Law Symposium. It was a really wonderful opportunity for us to hear from some incredibly accomplished women. And the sort of highlight of the day was the special guest speaker, Senator Tammy Duckworth from Illinois. And, you know, listening to these women, they said some incredibly profound things. They said lots of things that I feel like we've talked about on this podcast before, but they came at it from such a unique perspective because of their experience. You know, we want to share what they said to us during this presentation, but also maybe kind of talk a little bit about how that affects us and just some of our similar uh, shared experiences and thoughts on what was discussed today. And so before we talk about what we learned from this panelist, I just want to give a quick shout out to these women who shared such incredible knowledge with us. And so the panelists were Rochelle Crow, who was sworn in as the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Illinois back in June of 2022. Kim Frieder, who was appointed as the federal defender for the Southern District of Illinois in March of 2022. Amy Garrett, who is an assistant managing shareholder at Simmons Hanley Conroy. And Rebecca Jackson, who was a partner at Brian Cave from 1987 until 2015 and is currently an adjunct professor at the Bowen School of Law down in Little Rock at the University of Arkansas. And so, Mary, I know that you were furiously taking notes (laughs) during this panel discussion, and I'm curious, what stuck out to you from this talk? You know, it was such an awesome event, and the speakers were phenomenal, and I think One thing that I took away from listening to all these women is we need more women in leadership positions, whether it's at law firms or, you know, in the judiciary, you know, running for office. We need more women because a lot of the things that were discussed, I just keep thinking about. And so many of the reasons why, you know, things either aren't changing or are changing more slowly than we need them to be is because of old, old, old systems put in place by white men. That's what I keep coming back to. I don't know. That's just my own synopsis on it. And especially we need women of color in every place of leadership. And I think that we can't even have this discussion, you know, without acknowledging that intersectionality is, you know, essential. The panelists talked about that too, as well as Senator Duckworth. And One of the things that I took away from that first panel of speakers is something that will help women immensely in their professions, especially in the legal profession, is learning the value of your own time. I think we all around this table, we stand on those women's shoulders who are the panelists. They are paving the way for women after them, myself included, to not change the way that we want to approach our jobs because we know it'll just turn out a certain way because we're never going to be able to do what a guy does. We're never going to be able to get as much money in that same position. We just, you know, we change the price of services to lower them to get business because people would rather hire a man to do certain jobs in the legal profession than women. 
and then eventually just not changing the price anymore and keeping the price as it is and still getting business and knowing, hey, that means we can just do that and we don't need to change or lessen our value or lessen the value of our own time because that's not the way that we want to exist in the legal profession as women. Another thing that I thought was interesting, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, if a woman who's in the legal profession wants to do something, wants to, I don't know, take on a certain case or wants to be in a certain role at an office or move up in the company that they're in, and they do have someone, whether it's a, a man or a woman above them who's advocating for them to get that position, and then they come back to you as the female trying to get into that position and they are brought the news, hey, you're qualified. Everybody thinks you do a great job, but no one can ever envision a woman being in this position. So I'm really sorry, but that's how the decision came down. I mean, the shock value to that to me as I sit here today and I'm in such a privileged position that I I have not firsthand experienced that, at least not that directly. But I keep thinking about this in a different way. Like, for example, when I want to mediate a case, I would love to have more female mediators to pick from. And all I kept thinking is, what can we do as women to set the demand to be women? Because what I heard in the example that that speaker said was, I was qualified, I was ready, I was prepared, I wanted to be in the position, but the demand in that profession was such that it needed to be filled by a man. And I just keep thinking, why is that? And we got to go higher, right? Like it's got to be bigger change rather than having the female who's told, sorry, it just has to be a man going to complain with her female colleagues and then go home and carry on with her day. What if we actually took steps to make the demand be that it needs to be filled by a woman? The seat does. And I just, it lit a fire inside of me to just think about all of the places that we default to it being a man because it's just, it has always been a man and it continues to be a man. But what if the demand started being, we actually want a female mediator? And I'm using mediator just as an example, you know. But if that became the norm, that could be cool. I mean, I haven't been able to picture that for myself, which is kind of crazy in 2023. I love that you said that because I haven't really thought about that in the context of the legal field. Until you just said that, I realized I've never mediated a case with a female mediator, but I would love to do that and see how the experience is different. Until I have that experience, I don't know how it would affect the experience for me, but I love that. And I, I've realized that I do that in other areas of my life, but I haven't really integrated it into work. For example, when I started working as an attorney, I got a financial advisor, wanted someone to just kind of help me learn about my finances and take care of it with me. And one of my criteria that was not negotiable for me is I wanted to work with a woman. And I found two really great women who I now work with and passed up a lot of other people who came to me, either cold called me or came to me by recommendation of other people. And whenever they asked, you know, oh, can I ask why you went with someone else? I was like, honestly, I, I was really more comfortable working with another female. And I was not shy about telling them that that was one of the criteria. It's nothing against you. It's just something that I wanted. I think another example is finding female doctors a lot of people do. And I do it in other areas of my life. And I do that not only for myself, but for my comfort level, but also to empower women in professional fields and positions. So it's interesting that you bring that up, Mary, because I haven't really thought about integrating that into work. But now I'll be maybe keeping my eye out for opportunities to do so. I do think it's important to note with this conversation that 
at least for me, the goal is parity. And it's not, I never want to be chosen for something just because I'm a woman. I want to be chosen because I'm the best candidate. And I don't think that it means, you know, it should be on like a blind scale. It should be taken into consideration. But I don't know that it should be like the, or at least if I'm being up for something, I don't want to be chosen just because I'm a woman. And like, that's what they were looking for. So a couple of of different thoughts. I'll start with what you said, Elizabeth. And my first thought is, how many times has a woman been looked over for a job because she is a woman and lost out to a male candidate versus how many times has a woman been selected solely, even though she's a, a less qualified candidate, solely because she's a woman? I have a feeling it's skewed much more to the former than the latter. I agree with you. I don't want to be selected because of my gender. I want to be selected because of my talents, my knowledge, my experience, because of merit. I want to be selected for that. And maybe there are times where we may uh, second guess ourselves and doubt ourselves because we say, well, you know, did I only get this because I'm a girl or, you know, did I only get this because of my race or something like that? And they needed to fill the diversity quota. And I say we got to stop with that thinking entirely. Because let's be real about the situation. People in positions of less power, minority groups, which that includes women, that includes people of color, we are not selected because of the thing that makes us a minority. That just doesn't happen. And I think when we start to worry about, well, am I only getting selected because of this, you know, XYZ characteristic about myself, that is us allowing self-doubt and frankly, other people's insecurities leak into how we view ourselves like and projection how we, or something. Yeah, and how we value ourselves. And so I am trying really hard to do away with that. I don't think I've ever been hired for a case. I don't think I've ever gotten a job because I'm a woman. In fact, I think I've probably gotten it in spite of more often than not. So I'm trying to do away with that and just feel some self-confidence in myself that I am getting the work that I'm getting and I'm getting the roles and the leadership opportunities I'm getting because of who I am and the work that I do and how hard I work at it. So that's the first thing. And I'm kind of jumping to you, Megan. I agree with you on all of my doctors are women. And that's not because I'm, you know, I don't like men. But frankly, it's because I feel more comfortable with women expressing what's going on with me, expressing my level of pain. And I've had male doctors, I've had female doctors, and I genuinely feel like female doctors listen to me better because we have a shared experience. And maybe there is some internal biases going on with some of the male doctors I've had. And so I just feel more comfortable with female doctors knowing we have that shared background. And now I'm kind of jumping to you, Mary. Because I love this point you're making about female mediators. And I didn't think about that initially during the conversation that we had with the panelists. But now I'm thinking about it. We should have more female mediators. I have mediated some cases with female mediators, but not very often. In fact, the majority of the time when I get the list of mediators from the defendants that we can pick from, it's almost always men. And I'm not saying that these men aren't good mediators, that they're not qualified, but there are certain cases that I think calls for a female mediator partially because if I have a female client and it's for the same reason I feel more comfortable with a female doctor. And I'm thinking about, for example, we did the mesh cases, the vaginal mesh cases. All of our clients, except for maybe wrongful death cases where we represented the estate or something like that, but all of our living clients were women. And we're getting into incredibly you know, sensitive subject matter when we talk about their medical histories. 
And it's uncomfortable to talk to a man about that. And I even noticed that when we did those depositions a couple summers ago, a lot of times the defense attorneys would send in women attorneys. And I think that that was a smart move by the defense because I even noticed that my clients were willing to open up more to a female lawyer than they would have been to a male defense lawyer, even though they're asking essentially the same questions, it's going to be a different response. And I have to imagine that same thing for a mediator. We're coming in there. You want to feel like you're on equal footing. If you have you know, some big corporation on the other side that let's be real, it's probably a bunch of white men on that board. And then it's just you alone woman on the other side. When your mediator doesn't look like you, doesn't have a shared experience as you, when you don't know if you're going to be able to express how this injury has affected your life in a way that this person's going to even remotely understand, that's incredibly intimidating after already being in a system that does not feel designed for you. Mm-hmm. So I think female mediators play such an important role in cases like that, but also just in general cases. We should have, and we've talked about this before, women have been 50% of law school graduating classes since the early 90s. Why are we not at close to 50% of female mediators, close to 50% of the bench, close to 50% of equity partners at law firms? We're not even close to that. That's why I don't think women are getting jobs because we're women. Clearly, when you look at just the numbers, it's not there. It's not happening. So how do we change that? And going back to your example of mediators, Mary, I think we need to be talking to these companies that staff mediators, right. the companies that we go to and say, hey, why don't you have more women? Why aren't you recruiting more women to be mediators? I want to do business with someone, a company that values equity and that values the fact that I want to work with people who look like me, who share similar experiences to me and also to my clients. So I think that that's something that we can make a concerted effort towards is when we have these experiences. And, you know, we work very closely with many mediating firms or businesses that staff mediators for us. I think that that's a conversation that we can have with them of what efforts are you making to recruit women into your business? Even hearing that is really helpful because as I was sitting there listening to that initial example that the speaker gave, I was just like, dang, this feels disheartening. And to your point, it's like, It's not that there aren't more than qualified women and women of color. It's just that they're not the ones filling those seats for all the reasons we just talked about. And, you know, another interesting thing that I am curious to hear your thoughts on, one of the panelists indicated when she started, I think she got hired or she became in a position like a supervisory position. And it was more than one panelist who said this. They said the men I worked with didn't really know what to do with me. That's how they phrased it. And one of them said, I don't know if they expected me to be mothering them or if they expected me to be handling more of the feelings and less of the work stuff. And this idea came up that like women in the workplace are more expected to handle more things of related to feelings and not work. And I just, I have so many issues with that. It's so, it's hard for me to say because I don't get it. I I really, I don't get it. I mean, it's something that I've definitely experienced like through my work experience, being a woman on like a team with another male colleague with working with other women. 
sometimes it feels whether I brought this on or not that like I'm the person in charge of managing the emotions of not only myself, but my teammates. And part of that is just my personality. I want everyone to be comfortable and happy in the workplace. So, And I think that that is kind of how that burden gets shoved onto us as women because we take it on. I don't think that like anyone that I've worked with is at fault for that. Like it's a responsibility that I'm happy to deal with. I've said this before. I don't think that all successful lawyers are generally good leaders. I think it takes a lot of extra work on top of, you know, managing your caseload and managing your cases to manage your people, too. And I think once you see that everything gets a lot easier, if all the people around you are happy, then you have to learn to manage the emotions because, you know, we're not robots. We're all people with feelings and we all come into work with a lot of extra baggage, whether that be stuff going on at home, stuff going on in your personal life. And so as like the attorneys on the team, it's part of our responsibility to help, you know, make sure everyone's okay and like manage those kinds of emotions. And so I think that that falls on to you know, the women in leadership to kind of deal with that stuff. You know, I don't know why. It just it's something that I've certainly experienced. I mean, but quite frankly, I don't necessarily mind it, but it does take away from other stuff that we're expected to do in our job. So and it's something that, you know, do I think that male attorneys go home and think about how like people on their team are doing? No. (laughs) Do I do that sometimes? Yeah, I do. So I don't know. But managing emotions is certainly like part of our job, I think. But I think it makes us superior. Like, I think that's why like women are sought out to like fill certain positions because we can manage everything instead of just like getting the X's and O's done. Like you can take care of an entire team. I always thought of it sort of more as a personality thing. Like you said, my personality is just naturally a little bit more softer than the male colleague I work with. And so a lot of times the conversation is, I think that this conversation would be a lot better coming from you. This like, you know, maybe tough conversation or some sort of dealing with the client or maybe when it comes to delegating trial roles, you know, you take the damages witness. I think you'll be really, you know, effective at that. I'll do the technical expert. Sometimes I think about it in terms of personality, but I think you can't have that conversation without the broader conversation of women tend to have that personality trait a lot more often than men. I'm going to go back even further than just what professional life is, because I've had the benefit of working with a woman for the vast majority of my career. And I've seen how Amy treats her clients. And I think that she has even self-proclaimed herself as a mama bear. Right. She's very protective of her clients, almost how you would imagine a mother over her children. And I think that that's a wonderful quality in an attorney. And it's an important quality in an attorney when you work in the kind of cases that we do where people are scared and people don't know what's going on. And this is the first time they're experiencing this. And this is really nerve wracking work. But when we think about, well, where does that come from? Where does that almost like nurturing characteristic come from for women? I am thinking back to one time when my dad My dad was sick at the time. He'd been diagnosed with cancer. We were hanging out on the couch one time and we were sitting there and I asked my dad something along the lines of, you know, are you disappointed you never had any boys? Because my dad had all girls. And I said, you know, are you ever sad that you never had any boys? You know, no one to carry on the family name. You didn't get to play ball with anyone or whatever. (laughs) And he said, no, 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 no. I'm so proud to be a girl, dad. I love all my girls. Plus, you know, girls just take care of you better. I couldn't expect this from a son. And my dad was of a very different generation, and I know that this definitely came from a place of love, and he was trying to express gratitude to me for the level of care that my sisters and I had taken for him. 
But I thought about it and I thought, wait, why wouldn't a son do the same things for you? I mean, you're still their father. You've still given them everything that you, you know, would have given to your daughters. I don't understand this. Clearly, a son would take care of you. But then when we really think about it, a son wouldn't take care of a sick parent the way a daughter does. And, and I think this, we see this happen not just with parents, but sometimes also with children. And it goes back to this idea of emotional labor, of who is responsible for the emotional labor. So, Mary, I know you said that you don't get it, but the look on your face right now, I feel like maybe the light bulb's going off. Well, I, you know, I'm thinking about it and I just there's a couple different things that I'm thinking about having heard feedback from all of you. One is, I get what you're saying, Liz. It's kind of that old-timey thing, like, oh, you're going to have a daughter, that's good, like you'll be taken care of or something, that women who aren't even born yet are having that responsibility, you know? But I'm picturing a law firm of all men and one woman and then some staff. I actually, I do think that the men care about or have thought about the well-being of the people they're working with. I actually do think they do, but they think that it is not within their, you know, written on paper definition of masculinity in the workplace to actually be brave enough to address it. And so I think it's cowardly for men to not do that if they're not doing it. I think they need to be doing it because even if they say I don't care, the not caring is doing a disservice to your clients, to your firm, to you as an attorney, to your colleagues as attorneys, to your staff members. It is complete BS, in my opinion, to say that that's not happening. I do think it's happening. I think that if the men at that panelist office weren't doing that, I don't know if they ever had a guy before them do that as an example to let them know you should be doing that. I'm amped up about this, and I know I refer to it as being, you know, it's cowardly to not do that. If it's not cowardly, then it's by, like, pure ignorance. I have to believe that because I just, I want to believe that people are inherently good. I want to, and I get, you know, the root of it kind of being like the girls will take care of those things. But I think that it's going to bite you in the ass if you have not taken into consideration the well-being of the people you're working with, even if it gets put on the women like the feelings stuff, which I understand. And like even hearing you all talk about it, I have been in that position now as you give examples. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been there before. Like, why don't you call him, Mary? It's like, what the hell? Why would I be the one to make that phone call if you're the one who knows <laughs> the information that you want to whatever? Part of me is like, that's great. I love that about myself that I can do that. The other part I just think in the long term, if that's what it means to carry like the feelings aspect of it, okay, because it's progressing your work. It's progressing your career. It's progressing your rapport with your clients. It's getting you and your client forward. It's helping you work with your staff member better. They will trust you more than they will trust the person who never checks in with them, even though I believe he probably thinks about it. But if it's just dumped in terms of now this person's really upset because of something I've said and now I'm going to pitch it off to the woman to go handle it because women, feelings, uh, I just... What the hell? I just can't get around that. And I just, a workplace without emotion and being cognizant of your emotions is bound to absolutely crumble, in my opinion. It just is bewildering to me. I love the phrase, it's cowardly not to do it. Because when I think about like the work we do, this is a really tough job. And we work with people who have had some of the worst things possible happen to them. And it takes a lot of mental an emotional fortitude to be able to have that conversation with someone, to get them to be vulnerable with you, and then also to absorb that. Like we're absorbing 
so much emotion from our clients. And I don't know how many hours at this point of my career I have spent just listening to a client literally cry and sometimes crying with them. And I do think that that takes some bravery to also be vulnerable on your end of things. And I think that there are a lot of men who are really skilled and adept at sharing that emotion with their client. But I also think that we still have a problem where, to quote you, Mary, women, feelings. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not like a woo-woo, let's all talk about our deep feelings. It's like, how are you? How are you doing? I mean, I just, if people aren't asking that basic question when you're working with somebody, like, what the hell is what I'm thinking? But I can't see how it wouldn't benefit you to be having those conversations. And I think one of the women on the panel said, I think the guys thought I was just going to, like, start crying at some point. (laughs) And I just, like... I don't know. I'm so happy that I work with women. And, you know, I like work with some of the guys in the office, too. And I just I have no problem saying exactly what I am thinking or feeling about something. And if they tense up and don't know what to say, like, oh, yeah, I'm not really sure. I don't want to hear about that. I'm still going to say it and I'm going to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable when I say it, because that's what I'm going to do, because I want to foster that sort of environment. And if it's something that needs to be said and I want to talk to someone about, I won't keep talking to the person who's not receiving it, but it doesn't mean I can't say it, you know, because that's the expectation that we want to carry forward in workplaces. Another interesting theme that kind of ran throughout the panel discussion, we laughed at several times during the discussion that women are If you want someone who has to do a job that requires a lot of multitasking, (laughs) you know, ask a woman. And I think about that in so many parts of my life and I believe it. And again, I just keep thinking like, why is it the case? But it's like I was talking during one of the breaks to Elizabeth and Liz and thinking about how I have this inherent thought process about me that most women who I know have. And it's this thought of just like, well, all of these things need to get done. I'm just going to do them to get them done. And particularly as it comes to, you know, childcare, we were talking about women leaving the legal profession or stepping back for a while when they have kids. I have a, an almost two-year-old and, you know, my spouse is fantastic. And in my head, though, I'm thinking like, why do women do that so much? I feel like the theme at this, after this discussion, I was like, Why are women the ones who are doing all of these extra things at home, whether it's scheduling for the family or planning trips or making sure the house is taken care of or taking care of pets? And this is what I was thinking of. And I am not I am absolutely not citing to anything here. This is just the thought I had. I am actually thinking about like industrial revolution here. I'm like, is it because traditionally our society was built at a time where men would go to work and women would stay at home? So It was just the woman's job to do that. But now we've evolved into a society where women just it has to be pretty much a dual income household. So women are no one ever actually picked up the task that the women had when the guy would go to the nine to five. So now women just have the nine to five and do all the extra lifting that they did before. Like, is that what it's rooted in? I really do think so. Like, I think that men have changed a lot since the Industrial Revolution and they... <laughs> well, <laughs> society they has. Society I do, has. I think that society has changed a lot since the Industrial Revolution. But there's, there's still so many <laughs> yeah. men that have to be told to do something and won't just take it on initiative and do it. And they're like, oh, what am I going to do, honey? What do you need me to do, honey? It's like, just <laughs> yeah. whatever needs to be done, just do it. I don't mean to, like, <laughs> defend men. <laughs> 
gross. <laughs> but we're in a room of like high achiever doers and we happen to be women. And so I think that is also part of it. It's just like, that's what we do. And so right. we don't wait around for the men to do it. There are certainly women out there who are also really great, but might not have that kind of drive to just like get things done. And so there are definitely men who like shoulder some responsibility yeah. in the household, blah, blah, blah. But I do think it just stems back from like what women have always traditionally done. But it's really hard when we're now working, you know, full time professional jobs as well. Something that Senator Duckworth, which if you're not familiar with Senator Duckworth, she is the current senator from Illinois, along with Dick Durbin. Prior to that, she was a congressperson. But something that is very notable about her is that she is also a double amputee and she lost both of her legs while in combat. And she was a, a fighter pilot. I mean, she is a badass. She's also the first sitting female senator to ever give birth while in office. I mean, she had a child while there, which it's crazy to think about in the, you know, 200 and something year history of our Congress. This is the first time we've ever had a senator who was pregnant during her term. But either way, Senator Duckworth spoke about her time in the military and her service in the military. And she mentioned that there are not many women, unsurprisingly. It's a very male-dominated <laughs> field. I mean, we think law is bad. I got to imagine the military is worse. She said something about 15% of the military's women or maybe 15% of the pilots are women. There's some 15% was a statistic I heard her say, but something that the higher-ups, when she would go through you know, her flight program, and I think she said there was one other woman with her in her class, they ask them, do you have any other women you can recruit? We need more women pilots specifically because women are better multitaskers. There's so many moving parts and women, for some reason, are just better equipped at handling multiple things going on, multiple plates spinning. And so, you know, this conversation about like, well, why is that? Are we pre-programmed and does it go back to the Industrial Revolution? Does it go before <laughs> that? How far back does it go? But there is a reason. I think women have just been in charge of the home traditionally and there's so many things that have to go on and you have a constant mental checklist that you're running through. And then as we've seen, as women have entered the workforce, that mental checklist has not gone away. That idea of domesticity has not suddenly evaporated. And I do think, you know, not to defend men, Ugh, but I do think men are getting better at it. But are they advancing at it or getting better at the domestic side of life at the same rate that women are getting better and achieving more within the work side of life? And that might be where there's not parity. And, I, you know, I think about, you know, remember the ads we saw when we were kids? The yeah. modern woman. She right. has it all. She has a great job. She has the perfect family. She's able to you carry know, the laundry basket and the legal pad. Right. She's kidding. got her phone, her mobile phone in one hand, closing <laughs> business deals. And on the other hand, she's feeding the baby. Like yeah. there's, you're able to do <laughs> everything. Christ. But there wasn't at that same time a call for men of, hey, now you need to step up as well. In fact, it's a joke for men. I mean, the, the Mr. Mom trope right. is a real right. thing. And so right. men are, I think men oftentimes still get mocked for it. I think about my husband. My husband is great at really helping me try to split our home responsibilities 50-50 because he understands my job is just as important as his job. But that also means that sometimes he gets made fun of, and this has happened before, for cooking. 
I mean, I remember we had an older relative one time kind of razz him a little bit for enjoying cooking. And they're like, oh, you, you, are you barefoot and wearing an apron and uh, she's got you whipped or whatever. And I'm just thinking it is 2020 whatever year it was. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. And I'm like, I went to law school. Like, I've worked hard. I'm educated. You're proud of me for everything I've accomplished. Like, why are you trying to denigrate him for trying to make my home life a little bit easier when I'm trying to make our home life a little bit easier by also earning money? Right. So, you know, I think maybe we've been a little harsh on men. Maybe part of this is because men don't feel empowered and encouraged to take on these roles because they are getting mocked and you know, maybe men don't feel empowered and encouraged to step up in those ways because, you know, society isn't ready for that. But I kind of want to bring it back to just say, like, kudos to women for just being able to apparently do it all. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Kudos to women for doing it all and getting things done. And if a guy's worst today is getting mocked for doing some dishes, <laughs> true. you know what? That's a good day. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Well, ladies, thank you so much for another great discussion. I really appreciate all the thoughts that we had and we shared today. And, you know, I really want to give a special thank you to the Federal Bar Association for the Southern District of Illinois for putting on this presentation and allowing us to come and just learn so much from a really incredible group of panelists. Please remember that new episodes of Heels in the Courtroom drop every Wednesday. And if you have a comment or a question, you can reach out to us at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.